With all of that said, let's turn to our passage today. We're going through Jeremiah, and we are in Jeremiah 21 through the first part of chapter 23. It's very long. I'm not going to read the whole thing. And we're really going to focus on the sort of the latter half of that uh, today. So uh, let's go ahead and get started. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to your word this morning in need of it. We need to know that everything for faith and practice comes from you. We need to know that when your word is open before us, it is the word of the Lord. Thank you that Jeremiah is a prophetic book that builds our faith and gives us hope. And through it, teach us to hear the music of the Messiah. Help us to understand it, believe it, and obey it. And we pray this morning, speak through your word to us, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. The book of Jeremiah is like a great orchestral concert. Now, if you've been to uh, a great symphony, the National Symphony or something like that, the concert always begins with the orchestra tuning up. And they all come in and sit down and get out their instruments, you know, and they have them there. This is not the good part of the concert. You know, first they, uh, you know, and they have different instruments, and sometimes it's the concert master who's usually the first chair of whatever, often the violins, but they're not always there. Um, Sometimes it's the oboist, and they'll play a single A on her oboe, and it's a note that's then taken up by the strings and the woodwinds and the brass. And then all chaos breaks loose as each musician is playing his or her own notes. The sound of an orchestra tuning up is not music, but discord. The National Symphony has yet to release a recording of its great orchestral warm-ups. And the first 28 chapters of Jeremiah sound like an orchestra tuning up. They are full of discord, of sin and judgment. And we hear plenty of notes, but not much in the way of beautiful music. And we're still waiting to hear the great symphony of the new covenant, which begins in Jeremiah 29. Sometimes, however, if you listen very carefully, you can hear a little music while the orchestra tunes up. The leading cellist will play a scale. The bassoonist will play a few measures from his solo. One of the French horns will run through a tricky little section from the third movement. In the middle of all the discord... There is some real music. Jeremiah 23, the beginning, which is what we're going to focus on today, is real music. After 22 chapters of sin and judgment, finally, we get some grace notes. It's the best music of all. It's music for the Messiah. Chapter 23 contains beautiful tunes, the song for the Good Shepherd, and a melody for the righteous branch. We hear only the tune for a moment, and then it's gone. But the music will come back later in the book of Jeremiah, and then again at the coming of Christ. So we're going to begin with four messages. Consider them four out-of-tune instruments, desperately trying to find the right notes and get in tune. But they can't get there. 
But then one note soars above the rest, the music for the Messiah. And I was thinking about this. It reminded me of the movie Amadeus. For those that have not seen it, it's about the relationship of uh, Mozart and Antonio Soleri. And in this movie, Soleri is the court musician, and he's played by the great F. Murray Abraham. And he's listening to Mozart's Serenade Number no. 10 in B-flat major, K361, the Adagio, more commonly known as the Serenade for Winds. And in this touching scene, Soleri describes that note. He says, extraordinary. On the page, it looked like nothing. The beginning, simple, almost comic, just a pulse. Bassoons and horns like a rusty squeeze box. Then suddenly, high above it, an oboe, a single note hanging there, unwavering, till a clarinet took over and sweetened it into a phrase of such delight. This was music I'd never heard, filled with such longing, such unfulfillable longing. It had me trembling. It seemed to me as I was hearing a voice of God. So this morning, let's go into the orchestra pit and try to find that note. But first, we have to wade through four messages to four kings who sadly functioned as four out-of-tune instruments. And we're going to start with a message to an arrogant king. This is the first half of our section today. We're only going to look at a few verses. So we'll look at Jeremiah 22, verses 1 through 3, and then verses 8 through 9. And this is a message to an arrogant king. A message to an arrogant king. Jeremiah 22, 1 through 3. Thus says the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Jumping down to verse 8. And many nations will pass by this city. Every man will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord dealt thus with this great city? And they will answer, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. So you see, in the great days of the great kings, King David, King Hezekiah, King Josiah, the nation had honored the Lord. But now Judah is rapidly moving towards defeat and disgrace. And in these pivotal chapters, Jeremiah delivers four important messages to the leaders and to the people. These events take place around 588 B.C., when the Babylonian army is camped around the walls of Jerusalem. And hoping to secure help from Egypt, this weak king Zedekiah has rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And you can find all this in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 
and he hopes that Egypt will come and rescue him. And they don't show. And so there, Jerusalem and Judah is suffering the dreadful consequences of Zedekiah's foolish decision. In desperation, he looks to Jeremiah for help. And he sends Zephaniah the priest and Pasher, it's one of the court officers, to see the prophet. Now, this is not the same Pasher uh, from last week who beat Jeremiah. Uh, there's three guys named Pasher in this book, and none of them are any good. So you can toss that name if you're thinking about names for future children. That one's not going to be a good one to pick. And, uh, but Pasher, this Pasher is one of the court officers. So him and Zephaniah have been sent to see the prophet to get guidance from the Lord. And the king is hoping that God is going to send some sort of miraculous deliverance as he had done for King Hezekiah. And we can find that story in 2 Kings 18. But that's not the message he gets. Jeremiah responds with severe decrees of impending doom for the king, the people, and the house of David. And he tells them that not only is God going to refuse to deliver the city from the enemy, but he's going to fight with the enemy. And he will bring about Jerusalem's defeat. Judah's military might is going to be ineffective against the Babylonians. Now, in the past, God's Strong hand and outstretched arm had worked for his people multiple times, but now he's going to work against them because the nation had turned against God. And it seems strange that the Lord uses words like anger, fury, great wrath to describe his feelings towards his own people. And yet these words are part of his covenant with the people, and the nation knew the terms of the covenant. God has warned them again and again that their disobedience would arouse his anger and force him to bring judgment to this land. But the leaders won't listen. They prefer dead idols to the living God, and they preferred politics to faith. So Jeremiah announces the people in Jerusalem are going to die of famine, pestilence, or the sword, and any that survive will be taken captive to Babylon. And King Zedekiah and his officers are going to be handed over to Nebuchadnezzar and judged. And that's exactly what happens. The Babylonian siege begins at the beginning of 588 B.C., and it ends in the middle of 586 B.C., just over 30 months. There's no way out for the king. But the Lord offers the people a way out. He tells them, you'll be better off if you surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. And God has set before them two ways, way of life and the way of death. It's a choice that reminds them of the words of the covenant. It is a common Old Testament reminder that there's only two ways to live, life or death, righteous or unrighteous, truth or falsehood. With God, we always have to decide one way or the other. It's not possible to be neutral. And the classic scene where this is laid out is in the words of uh, Joshua. In Joshua 24, he says, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river 
or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And jumping down to verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. All is good. Well, of course, they went on repeatedly to forsake the Lord. And now the time for judgment is upon them. And the Babylonians would treat the deserters like the spoils of war. And the Jews, upon losing everything, would be happy to escape with their lives. And since Nebuchadnezzar is doing the work of God in punishing the kingdom of Judah, and since God is now allied with Babylon in fighting Judah, to surrender to Babylon means to surrender to the will of God. It means to confess guilt and submit to the, the hand of uh, God. Rebellion against the Babylonians is rebellion against the Lord, and it will be the way of death. And many of them rebelled, and many of them died. And yet the leaders of Jerusalem are so certain that their city is invulnerable, and there was no need to be afraid. They're surrounded on three sides by valleys, so the city really only has to defend itself from the north. And Jerusalem's inhabitants see themselves enthroned on this rocky plateau. But God will soon dethrone them and cause them to lose their crown. This chapter begins with a king's cry for help and ends with the prophet's pronouncement of doom. But why? Well, much of the answer revolves around this arrogant King Zedekiah. He's rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. He assumed the Egyptians are going to come bail him out. They didn't. And he turns to the Lord only as a last resort. You know, he's, he's now he's turning to the Lord because the Babylonians have arrived. They're camped outside the wall. He can look over the wall and see this massive Babylonian army who has already defeated Assyria and Egypt. And it's as if God is now saying to him, you thought you could pull this off on your own. You didn't need me. You didn't come to me as a matter of first importance, but only when all of your own schemes failed. And now it's too late. And Zedekiah, his sons, and his nobles all get captured. His sons are killed right before his eyes, and then he's blinded and taken to Babylon where he dies. His arrogance not only got him killed, but it led to the destruction of his country and the exile of his people. Now, even though Zedekiah is the first king in this series of messages, in reality, in chronological order, he's the last king of Judah. He is preceded by equally woeful kings, sons and grandsons of the last godly king, who was King Josiah. He had reigned for 31 years and sought to lead the people back to God, but not so his sons. They are the out-of-tune instruments who, no matter how hard they tried, can't find the right notes. 
And Jeremiah has messages for them too. We'll go through them a little bit quicker. So let's turn to chapter 22, verses 11 and 12, and we have a message to a hopeless king. So we had an arrogant king, and now we have a hopeless king. It says, For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah his father and who went away from this place. He shall return here no more. But in the place where they have carried him captive, there he shall die, and he shall never see this land again. Shalom is formerly known as King Jehoahaz. He succeeds Josiah and reigns just three months. And he's so inept that the Pharaoh, basically having lost the battle to Babylon and going back past Jerusalem, just picks him up and takes him with him and deports him to Egypt where he dies. The death of a godly King Josiah a decade earlier had brought great sorrow to the people. Even Jeremiah had written a lament uh, over dead Josiah. But there's no hope for this nation in looking back and weeping over a dead past. There's no hope in trusting that King Jehoahaz, Shalom, is going to be released from Egypt where he's being held prisoner of Pharaoh. And apparently there is a pro Jehoahaz uh, party in Judah that had false hopes for his return. Apparently, some of the false prophets had encouraged these false hopes. And instead, Jeremiah now announces that Jehoahaz will never return to Judah, but will die in Egypt. And instead of looking to a dead pastor, trusting in a deposed leader, people should have been dealing with the issues of the hour and looking to the Lord for his help. Josiah was dead. Jehoahaz was exiled. It's time for Zedekiah to follow the example of his godly father, Josiah, and lead the people back to the worship of the true God. But that doesn't happen. The people instead turn to another out-of-tune instrument. And so Jeremiah has a message for him too. And this starts at verse 13. And it's a message to a coveting king. A coveting king. We're going to read 13 to 19 and then verse 21. It says, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness, speaking of Josiah? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord? But you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood and for practicing oppression and violence. Therefore says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Notice he doesn't call any of these guys king. The only person he calls king is Josiah because clearly he's against these sort of loser kings. He says, they shall not lament for him, saying, ah, my brother or ah, sister. They shall, lament, shall not lament for him, saying, ah, Lord, or ah, his majesty. 
With the burial of a donkey, he shall be buried, dragged, and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. And then verse 21. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said I will not listen. This has been your way from your youth that you have not obeyed my voice. So now we have this international crisis. Jehoiakim, in the middle of it, is more concerned about building his own palace than he is concerned with building a righteous kingdom. And he even uses Jewish slave labor to do it. It's against the law to hold back wages, and it was unheard of, unthinkable, for a Jewish king to enslave fellow Jews. The nation is decaying and dying, and the king's admiring his palace, his spacious rooms, his large windows, the decorated cedar-paneled walls. And Jeremiah asks, verse 15, you think you're a king because you compete in cedar? Just because you have the best and biggest house and the nice cedar paneling, you think that's what makes you a king? Jeremiah reminds him that King Josiah lived comfortably and still did what was just and right. Josiah defended the cause of the poor and God blessed him. But Jehoiakim thought only of himself. It didn't worry him that God was witnessing him robbing the poor and killing the innocent and oppressing the just in order to satisfy his craving for luxury. Jehoiakim's not much different than any modern politician who profits from dishonest gain while they ignore the cries of the poor and the needy. And now it's very interesting. Jo- uh, Jeremiah moves from him, third person in verse 13, to you, second person in verse 15, to naming the king in verse 18. He announced the king's burial. It's going to be quite unlike that given to his beloved father. The nation mourned Josiah's death. He says, the Jews aren't even going to weep when Jehoiakim dies, and they're not going to bury him like a king. Nobody pays for an expensive funeral to bury a donkey. That's not the word the King James uses. And he says, like a donkey... You're going to be thrown on the garbage dump, and the scavengers will devour you. And this is actually in fulfillment of the covenant curses for those who refuse to obey God's covenant. Deuteronomy 28 says, And your dead body shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. Jehoiakim reigned for 11 years and was followed by his son Jehoiakim, also called Jaconiah, I practice this, I obviously didn't work, Anconiah, which is what it's used, and uh, like his equally inept uncle, we've now moved another generation, so this is Josiah's grandson. His reign lasts three months, and Nebuchadnezzar captures him, takes him to Babylon, and there he dies. And the message that Jeremiah has for him This is the fourth out-of-tune instrument. Is a message to a rejected king. The end of verse uh, chapter 22, verses 24 through 30. As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, wore the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar 
king of Babylon and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But in the land to which they will long to return, there they shall not return. Is this man Coniah a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land they do not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. This is a really important passage because it tells you he has children, and then it tells you, write him down as childless. And then it says none of his offspring will sit on the throne of David. Jehoiakim reigns three months, three months and ten days, before he's deposed with the queen mother to Babylon and replaced by his uncle Zedekiah. Jehoiakim is a wicked man. And verse 26 suggests moms know better. And she's as much to blame. It says, I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country. And Jeremiah has warned both the king and his mother, but they wouldn't listen. And he says, if the king were the very signet ring on God's right hand, God would tear it off and hand it to the Babylonians, verse 24. Now, a signet ring is valuable. It's used to prove authority, identify possessions, sign official documents. But Jehoiakim is useless to the Lord, fit only to be thrown away in Babylon. And when his grandson... Jehoiakim's grandson is Zerubbabel. I love that name. And he helps the exiles return after 70 years to the land and reestablish the government and reestablish worship. And he's a representative of the Davidic line, even though he doesn't reign as king. But we see with Zerubbabel, the Lord reverses this curse. And he says to him, Zerubbabel is like a signet ring to me, which many is chosen and precious to God. We read that in Haggai 2. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, going back to the question in verse 28, it's given in such a way that no is the expected answer. There it says, uh, is this man a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? The people didn't consider Jehoiakim a broken vessel, a broken pot to be tossed away. In fact, again, one of the false prophets predicted Jehoiakim will return. He's going to deliver the nation. He will reign in power. But God has another plan. For this evil man, this king, his mother, his sons are all deported to Babylon where they all died. Now, Jehoiakim has at least, as far as we know from the uh, scriptures, seven children by several wives. None of them will sit on the throne of David. God declares he will treat Jehoiakim as if he were childless. Zedekiah, who's the last king of Judah, saw the Babylonians slay his sons but it's likely that Zedekiah dies before Jehoiakim. They're all taken into exile. Jehoiakim first. Zedekiah is the last king. 
But Zedekiah dies first, which means that Jehoiakim is the last surviving king in David's line. And that's important because we know that Jesus Christ is the son of David. We see that in Matthew 1, which starts out the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. We're given that message in Romans 1. We read concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh and who will restore the fortunes of Israel and the reign from David's throne. Mary is told this same thing in Luke 1. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, the genealogy in Matthew 1 traces Christ's ancestry through his legal father, Joseph. And since Jehoiakim is in the family tree, none of his descendants can claim the throne because of the curse pronounced in these verses at the end of Jeremiah 22. Our Lord gets his Davidic throne rights through his mother, Mary whose genealogy is given in Luke chapter 3. From Abraham to David, the lists are very similar. But from David on, they differ dramatically. Luke traced the line through David's son, Nathan, and thus avoids Jehoiakim. So Jesus Christ, through his mother Mary, has every right to David's throne, and his future reign is what Jeremiah deals with next. So Jeremiah discloses the truth about these four kings. Four out-of-tune instruments. But then he makes a promise about the one note that would soar above the rest. The music for the Messiah. The Messiah who would one day reign and execute justice in the land. And this is a message about a righteous king. The righteous king. Chapter 23, verses 1 through 8. These are among the most important verses in the entire book of Jeremiah. We'll read all of them. It says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. And this is the key verse. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. I'm going to go ahead and stop there. Jeremiah begins chapter 23 by denouncing all the shepherds of Judah for the ruthless way they treated these people. Sometimes Jeremiah uses shepherds specifically for priests and prophets. Here he's using for everyone in leadership over God's people. And instead of caring for the flock in love, they drove it mercilessly and exploited it. And because the leaders disobeyed the law, they refused to trust God, they have destroyed the nation and scattered the flock. 
And here God promises to regather his people, verse 3, and transform the remnant into a nation. The word remnant is used 19 times in Jeremiah. And as you know, a remnant does return to Judah after the exile, and they rebuilt the temple and restored national life. Jeremiah, however, promises a much greater gathering of the Jews, a greater miracle than their deliverance from Egypt. We see that in verses uh, 7 and 8. It says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, which is a common refrain. But now, verse 8, as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. And he's saying the return from exile is going to be greater even than the exodus. And those are the two great defining moments in Old Testament history. God is going to call his people from the nations of the world and gather them in their land and then send them their promised Messiah. And David's family tree might have been cut down because of these four bad kings. But verse 5, a righteous branch would grow from the stump and become ruler of the nation. Now, we read that earlier in our responsive reading in Isaiah 11 which said, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and a fear of the Lord. And in contrast to the unrighteous kings that Jeremiah has been describing, this king will be righteous and will rule justly. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah will be reunited into one nation, the people of Jacob. And they will experience salvation and live in peace and safety. And the message of Jeremiah 21 through Jeremiah, the beginning of Jeremiah 23, is that there is no good king but Christ. These chapters, which closes the book on the kings of Judah, reveal that kingship had turned out to be a royal disaster. Each of the last four Judean monarchs was a bad king, and each met a horrible fate. And Jeremiah prophesied in chapter 22, verse 22, the wind shall shepherd your shepherds, and your lovers shall go into captivity, and then you will be ashamed and confounded because of your evil. The last kings of Judah are gone with the wind. So all this is interesting and good to know. But how does it affect us? I mean, this all took place nearly 2,600 years ago. What difference about knowing, uh, does it make knowing about these four kings, these four out-of-tune instruments? What difference does that make for us today in the here and now? Well, God put this here. <clears throat> I tell my students, you can't skip any passages. God put it there for a reason. It's your job to find out what that reason is. And I think it's here because he wants us to understand the comparison that he's making between these four kings and the one righteous king. So comparisons being made, uh, if you will, between the wrong notes and playing the one note that soars above the rest. The music for the Messiah, the righteous king. 
And that leaves us with a question. And it's very personal. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's very important. And the question is, who is your righteousness? Who is your righteousness? You see, King Zedekiah placed his hope in himself. <coughs> in his own righteousness. His name, Zedekiah, means my righteousness is in the Lord. That's what Zedekiah means. It suggests hope, suggests conviction. And Jeremiah is saying that Zedekiah utterly fails to live up to his name. The names matter in the Old Testament. And if the Lord were his righteousness, it would imply some trust. It would imply some trust in the Lord on his part. It would imply some imitation on his part in the form of righteousness, both to the Lord and to the people. None of that is forthcoming. None of it. Zedekiah isn't the only failed shepherd but the sheep are ultimately God's, and they've let themselves be led astray by these shepherds. And they, too, are responsible for that failure. You can't make unreliable leadership an excuse, and so they will pay the penalty, too. And yet it's still the case that God is their chief shepherd and cannot help but go looking for them to bring them home and give them better shepherds than they had before. And somewhat pointedly, Jeremiah declares that one day there'll be a king who will constitute a righteous branch for David, for the house of David, for the throne of David. And he will exercise righteousness. And when Jeremiah speaks about raising up a righteous branch for David, he implies that the Davidic tree has been cut down by all these bad kings, but that a branch is going to grow out of its stump. And God has a vision for a king who will reign in righteousness and he promises to see it fulfilled. God promises to shepherd the lost sheep of Israel and he wants the job done right so he promises to do it himself. After God drives the sheep out into the nations, he will bring them back into his own pasture, into his fold. He will be the good shepherd who gathers the remnant of his flock back from exile. And like most of Jeremiah's promises, these promises have a double fulfillment. Of course, they're fulfilled when God brings the people back from exile in Babylon. But they're fulfilled again by the coming of Christ when Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus is claiming to fulfill everything the Old Testament promised about the good shepherd, including all the promises of Jeremiah 23. The righteousness Jeremiah is looking forward to can only be found 
in the reign of King Jesus. He rescues the poor from their enemies. He delivers slaves from their bondage. He rescues sinners from their captivity to Satan. He welcomes strangers to live among us people. He takes notice of children without fathers. He takes special care of wives without husbands. He settles all of his children into his family, his church. Jesus Christ is the righteous king. Now, I told you the name Zedekiah means my righteousness is in the Lord, but the name doesn't fit, so God reverses it. The name Zedekiah is Zedek and Yah, righteousness and Lord. And God turns it around and makes it something new and special. And the name of this righteous king is Yahweh Zedekinu. He takes Yah and Zedek and reverses them. And now it says the Lord, our righteousness. He flips Zedekiah's name and makes it a better one because names matter. But there's another reason the people need a righteous branch. True, their king was unrighteous. The last four kings were unrighteous. But they need a righteous king because they were unrighteous. For 22 chapters, Jeremiah has documented the sins of God's people in great detail. They're no more righteous than their kings are. They broke every one of God's commandments. Back in chapter 5, God promised that he would forgive his people if Jeremiah could find just one good man. And we were told the prophet searched high and low. He walked up the streets and down the alleys, and he couldn't find even one man to be righteous for the people. But now in chapter 23, Jeremiah finally finds his man. The good shepherd, the son of David, the wise king will be righteous for his people. And in this way, the goodness, integrity, and moral perfection of the righteous branch would belong to God's people. His righteousness will be credited to their account. And according to the apostle Paul, this action and this title can only belong to Christ Jesus. We read in 1 Corinthians 1, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, he, God, made him Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is credited to your account, and you're declared righteous before God. It's explained in Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All these promises have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. When we hear the melody of the righteous branch, we know that Jeremiah is playing the music of the Messiah. Jesus Christ is righteous for his people. His righteousness belongs to them. His righteous deeds fulfill the law they could never keep. His righteous sufferings satisfy the atonement they could never pay. If you trust in Jesus Christ, then his righteousness belongs to you, and you will be righteous in God's sight forever. The righteous branch is the answer to Judah's problem, the answer to Jeremiah's problem, the answer to the Apostle Paul's problem, and the answer to your problem, and the answer to my problem. The righteousness of God belongs to you if you put your faith and hope in Christ Jesus. You can have the righteousness of God if you believe 
in Jesus Christ. This is the one note that soars above the rest. And it's great encouragement to know that in the middle of so many out-of-tune instruments, Jeremiah knew the music about Christ, the righteous king. The weeping prophet suffered many dark days, but he did not live without hope. He knew the music for the Messiah. Do you know that music? Do you have that righteousness? And above all of the unrighteousness in which we live, can you hear that note? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you. Once again, you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we confess to you that we are often out-of-tune instruments. We would rather hear ourselves than listen to the voice of God. Like King Zedekiah, we trust in our own righteousness rather than in King Jesus, who is our righteousness. Far too often we're surrounded by discord and we can't hear the one note soaring above the rest, the note of the righteous branch, the call of the good shepherd, the hope of the righteous king, the music of the Messiah. Give us a greater desire to know your word, to know that it's powerful in and of itself, that it's relevant to every situation in our lives and to believe that it comes from your hand. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for being preoccupied with ourselves. Forgive us for our unrighteousness and work in each of us this year as we live with the prophet Jeremiah, as we see what he sees and as we hear what he hears. Teach us to respond with greater faith, a renewed confidence in your word, and an ever-increasing trust in your great and precious promises. And through all those things, draw us ever closer to the righteous branch, your son, our savior, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, the Lord our righteousness, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. As call out among This comes to you from the book of Philippians, chapter 3. Again, the words of the Apostle Paul. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. God bless you. We'll see you at lunch.